Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mostly Weather podcast. I'm Jeff Norwood-Brown and joining me today is Met Office podcast presenter and meteorologist Claire Nazir. Hello. And also in the studio is our very special guest Steve who's an ex-military and now civil pilot. Hi everybody, my name is Steve and I've been in the flying game for about 40 years. I learned to fly with the Royal Air Force and uh, spent 20 years operating military transport aircraft around the world and then moved on to flying commercial jets in both the short and long haul role. I'm currently qualified to fly the Boeing 777 aircraft and I've racked up a little over 21,000 hours in my 40 years of flying. Okay, so that intro foretells our topic for this episode. It's pilot and aviation weather. So before you actually take off, Steve, where do you get your information from? So we turn up in our uh, crew report centre. A pilot's aim is always to get his customers to their destinations in uh, the most safe and efficient method as possible. We plan to leave on time and arrive on time or early. Our planners provide us with weather data concerning the departure airfield, the arrival airport and significant weather that we may encounter en route. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. We're on the airfield. What sort of weather is going to affect us? You know, what sort of information do you get before you actually take off? Okay, the planners provide us with all sorts of information. Obviously, the departure airfield, it's very nice to depart in what we call cow okay conditions, cloud and visibly okay. So this is the cloud base, is it? Or the- no cloud below 5,000 feet and uh, visibility beyond 10 statute miles is always a nice way to start the day. Blue sky day is always nice to fly. We don't always get that. Uh, we have to deal with such things as uh, fog, icing, local weather phenomena such as heavy rainstorms. They've all got to be taken into account when we're doing our planning, uh, the, literally at the initial planning stage before we even load fuel onto the airplane. Right, okay, so is the more emphasis put on taking off or in flight or is it is it all considered equally? The critical phase of flight obviously the takeoff and the landing. We right. need to know we can take off safely in the weather conditions we have and we need to know on arrival, maybe 12 hours later, uh, that the conditions at the airfield we're going to land out are going to be safe for us to carry out landing in terms of visibility, crosswinds and, and other phenomena that might affect us. The en route stage we do look at in great detail but we can update that once we're airborne out of the airfield safely. Right, okay, so we're talking more more the long haul flights here. Yes. Yeah, okay, so so you're very, very interested in, in, in the small local effects at the local airport, are Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Okay. So you get an in-house forecaster, don't you, who actually gives you a brief and obviously you get data from the Met Office as well. Absolutely. So what do you get, what's it in terms, because actually I remember, I used to uh, write for aviation forecasting and we used to use things called METARs and TAFs. Yep. So they're both, we, we've got so many acronyms in the yeah. Met Office. So METAR is a, a, a MET airfield report and that's an observation that uh, it, it's put into a, a type of code. And I think it was originally coded that way just because it was transmitted by computer and computing power wasn't that good. But everyone's learned the code now, so, so we, we stick with that. And the TAF is the uh, terminal area forecast. So that's looking uh, maybe 6, 12, 18 hours ahead. Sure. Yeah, okay, so you, so you pick up those for um, the... Look at the meter for the departure airfield at the time of our, and the forecast for the time of our departure, because we're in about an hour and a half or so before we actually push back from the stand. Right. Um, we look carefully at that. Temperatures, pressures, they will all affect our takeoff performance, which we'll be loading into our flight computer, so we need to have a working knowledge of that. And we'll look at the TAF for the airfields we're going to. As you say, uh, we're looking at uh, weather forecasts for landing 12 hours later in somewhere like Tokyo or Hong Kong, for example. Yeah. Um, so we need that to be fairly accurate. We need to be very accurate. We'll, again, update that en route. But the amount of fuel we carry will be dependent on what that forecast says. You mentioned just briefly there, you mentioned uh, pressure and temperature. Now, I happen to know that if you happen to be in a very hot country, 
that has a big effect on your, is it takeoff speed or takeoff weight? Takeoff weights in particular, yes. Performance is limited. The higher you are and not the higher the temperature. We'll feed the uh, information on temperature, pressure, uh, wind speed, uh, headwind, tailwind or whatever, aircraft weight into our flight computer and it will come out with a set of speeds which we use during our takeoff roll. So this is because the, the well the higher you are the less dense the air is and the hotter the air is the less dense it is so essentially the aircraft doesn't the aircraft and engines don't perform as well when you're in a hot and high situation right okay so not only you're looking at your destination airport you're looking at airports on the way yes we are we like to have uh, places we can dive into should uh, we have for example medical emergencies it's nice to know when we're flying along that you can get to an airfield within a certain length of time. Uh, now when you're flying on some of the northern routes like uh, across Siberia say to uh, Hong Kong or, or Tokyo, some of those airfields are quite few and far dispersed and they have different procedures, different languages that we have to cope with. Knowing that the weather's good at the, those airfields is half the battle. If we know we can divert, get into those airfields and the weather's going to be good then we can concentrate on the other stuff which gets interesting. Right. Uh, but knowing the weather on route is, is very important to us. What determines how much fuel you'll take on for a flight? There's a minimum fuel you have to carry. So there's the fuel that's got to be enough to push back and taxi, take off safely, complete the route, and arrive at your destination airfield with enough fuel to divert to an airfield where the weather or the conditions are better. Right. We can also add to that contingency fuel. So for example, if we were flying into, let's say, uh, Dallas or Houston in the summer and thunderstorms are forecast, we wouldn't want to arrive at Houston, fly one approach, break it off because of thunderstorms and then divert straight to Dallas. It'd be quite nice to go there and say, there's a thunderstorm there right now, but we're carrying an extra 30 minutes holding fuel. So we can actually hold off, the thunderstorm will move through and then we can land on the airfield and deliver the passengers where they actually want to go. I was going to say, that's where the passengers are expecting to be. So, okay, so we looked at temperature and uh, pressure there, but uh, what else can prevent you actually taking off? I'm thinking things like icing, so icing, and this goes into why we get ground delays. So if an aircraft's been stood out on the stand all night and it's been in icing conditions, the aircraft will be de-iced completely, and I mean completely, all the, all the surfaces are totally de-iced, underwing, overwing, uh, so it's clean wing, before the passengers get to the aircraft. They can then board, we can push, and off we go. Where we get delays and where passengers see us doing de-icing uh, after they boarded is normally because the conditions at the airfield we're leaving are such that in the time from taxiing from the stand to the runway, we could actually get more ice building up on the aircraft. Right, so if you've got a wet aircraft and you're about to take off into very cold air. Exactly, or if it's snowing, I mean, that, those sort of conditions as well. So what we do is we apply anti-ice fluid to the aircraft. That means we can de-ice, put the anti-ice fluid on, but the anti-ice fluid only lasts for a set amount of time depending on conditions. Let's say 45 minutes. So once the anti-ice is on, we then have to be ready to push back, taxi out, get to the runway threshold, and get airborne as quickly as possible. If we go a minute over that holding time, as we call it, we have to go back and do it all again. Right. Okay. So the, I mean, one of the other conditions, uh, I'm, I might be wrong. I'm, I'm willing to be corrected here, but one of the problems with fog is not so much that the aircraft can't see where it's going, but ground control can't see where you are on the airfield. So in foggy conditions, a, we're going to taxi big airplanes a lot slower around the airfield. Also, aircraft landing at the airfield, uh, they can land in low visibility conditions quite happily with the automatics we have on the aircraft. But once on the ground, it's the pilots who taxi them around. So finding your way off the runway is going to be slower. So the movement of aircraft in the airfield is, is a lot slower. And consequently, they're not going to push you back if there's any chance of, um, 
upon beginning to each other on the ground, it's, it yeah. becomes expensive business. So, I mean, are there older aircraft with less equipment on board that find it more difficult in these conditions? We're not really using any technical equipment on the aircraft on the ground. We're relying on air traffic controllers and lighting systems. They'll say, wait for the Boeing 777 from another airline to pass in front of you. We have red stop bars, amber and green lights, and we don't move until they let us go. Right. Can I just say that, and this is not really a rant, but it is a little bit, I've flown into some airports where the weather has been bad or absolutely bitterly sub-zero cold, and it's been very, very efficient. Mm-hmm. But in particularly in the UK, all it takes is a little bit of snow, a little bit of ice, and there are delays upon delays. Yep. Uh, why is that? If, if we're looking at um, poor weather conditions in, in places which are regularly used to it, for example, let me take uh, Chicago as a classic. Chicago gets uh, lake fog and it gets snow and all sorts of stuff. Regularly in the winter in Chicago, we're having to de-ice, we're having to anti-ice, but they're used to it. They've got all the kit out there. Uh, it's, it's part of their way of life, if you like. So consequently, Chicago is one example. We will taxi off the stand, still with ice and snow on the aeroplane, We'll taxi out and there'll be a remote de-icing stand. So just before the takeoff point, right. we will stop and they will have four rigs which will just hose the aircraft down. They'll do the inspection. They'll come on the intercom and say, the aircraft's clean. We say, thanks. We talk to our traffic. We taxi straight to the runway and we go. That's really efficient. Now, that happens every year in Chicago, New York and several other places around the world. In the UK, we don't get those extreme weather conditions as much. It's millions of pounds of technology you have to have sitting there ready to go. It's frustrating when there's not enough of it, but then you've got to see from the commercial side that companies aren't going to buy into it if it's going to sit outside and not be used year after year. Okay, so let's say we're cleared for takeoff now and we've barreled down the runway and lifted off. What sort of information are you now going to get once you're off the ground? Okay, so... um I mean, you're still talking TAFs and METARs here as you go along? Or? Yeah, so we'll, um, we'll depart um, a UK destination, follow a standard departure route, and eventually we'll get into the uh, track system across the Atlantic. Uh, once we're up at cruise altitude, things settle down a little bit, the adrenaline can go down a little bit, the automatics have got the aeroplane, the cabin crew get into doing their service, and we'll then start to review the what-if, the next step ahead. So let's say we're heading out of London across to the Far East. I'll probably get um, weather for Amsterdam, uh, maybe then up towards uh, Copenhagen, Helsinki, uh, and then maybe uh, one of the two um, Moscow airports. Right. So I'm looking to say, right, in the next three hours, what's our bolt hole? Where can we dive into if something was to go amiss? And I always tend to use the medical emergency as the one that's going to generate us to, to act fairly quickly. Right, okay. So uh, I'm just thinking mid-Atlantic. Do you get much weather once you're mid-Atlantic? Yes, we... Because obviously over the Mid-Atlantic you're sort of miles from anywhere, so mm-hmm. we have to remain within a certain specified time of airports where the weather is suitable for us to land, what we call suitable airports. Uh, so we're going across the Atlantic, the Exhaus, for example, Larges, Santa Maria. Uh, I'll update their weather probably every hour, just have a little look, make sure there's nothing spectacular in the herders. The Azores has always got showers and stuff. So. Is that why when you're crossing from east to west across the Atlantic, a lot of the aircraft fly towards Greenland, so they're closer to an airport in the north. It depends. Obviously, there's jet stream as well, but yeah. is that one of the reasons? So, yes. On our aircraft, we can go um, 180 minutes, so three hours. We can be, we plan to be no more than three hours away from a suitable airport based on one engine. So what we're saying is we can be three hours from somewhere, and if an engine fails, we can divert to an airport which is suitable for us to land. It's going to be a long three hours on one engine, but that's the way that's the way we work it. Some aircraft can only do 90 minutes, some only do 60 minutes, and it depends on the kit on the aeroplane. So if you've only got um, a 60-minute limitation on that, then clearly you have to fly 
close to land the whole time. So your routes will go further north or, or, or moderate resorts. But normally, yes, Iceland, Greenland, the, uh, the Maritimes in Canada. These are fairly remote places with remarkably large airfields. They, they are. I mean, somewhere like uh, Keflavik, for example, has got runways uh, in north, south, east and west, so there's never going to be a crosswind problem. Um, but you'd need to update the weather as far as you know, snow and icing conditions and stuff like that. Um, there are places such as Sonderstrom in Greenland, which is, um, you know, it is quite remote, but it's a usable airfield. Yeah. And then over in the Maritimes, Gander, Halifax are all available to us. Okay, so one of the main challenges I would think that you would experience uh, while flying, especially for as far as the passengers are concerned, is turbulence. Yeah. So we're going to have to touch on turbulence. Now, I started flying um, in gliders. Now, I liked up drafts and down drafts because uh, that made it more fun and actually gave you the lift. But it's when the turbulence starts to really start affect the plane. How much can turbulence actually affect the plane? Okay, so the way I look at turbulence is that is it dangerous? No, it's not. For the most part, turbulence... Are we talking clear air turbulence? Are we, are we talking, yes, we're talking turbulence not associated with thunderstorm or shower activity. We're talking about just you're looking out the window of your aeroplane and it's beautifully clear and for some reason you're being racked around. We mentioned earlier on that uh, when we fly, we fly as efficiently as possible. So the planners will always put you in the best tailwinds or the least headwinds. So let's say they're putting us in a tailwind um, out of the Far East. That's going to be probably a jet stream, probably a 200 mile an hour jet stream. That core of air is about four to 6,000 feet thick. And we're at different flight levels, different uh, altitudes in that. If you're right in the center of it, it's beautiful. It's smooth. You're racking along its, you know, the 200 knot tailwind. You've got a nice laminar flow. Nice laminar flow all the way throughout. The way I like to look at it, um, if you compare a jet stream to a fast-flowing river, which it is in a way, the centre of the flow is smooth, but near the edges, uh, near the banks, it's a lot slower and therefore it ripples, there's a lot more turbulence. Also, when it turns through 90 degrees, turns a bend, the inside of the flow is more turbulent than the centre and the outside of the flow. The very same thing happens with, with the jet streams. If you're right in the centre of it, it's all very, very smooth. If you're on the edge, either an extreme to the right or left, or a high altitude or low altitude, you're probably going to get a little bit of turbulence with it. So how big is the core of the jet stream? It varies, but anything between six and 8,000 feet thick is about right. Um, so if you're flying at 32,000 feet and getting bumps, if you can get a climb to 35,000 feet, you could well be in the smooth. Likewise, if you're flying along at 35,000 feet and it's smooth and you need to descend for whatever reason, you're probably going to go into some more rough air. And hence experience of this thing and, and, and pre-planning, you can actually predict pretty much where it's going to be rough and, and hopefully keep our customers out of it. I presume that's a, because of a change in is that wind shear, change of wind direction, wind, wind change of wind speed, a, it's a big deal. temperature and density yeah. of the air. Times I've flown across the Atlantic whereby I've, there's been a jet stream but I've noticed towards the end of the jet stream it suddenly shoots off the north. Uh, I'll brief the cabin crew in particular, I'll say look around about two hours from landing the chances are the jet stream room which is getting us home early is actually going to turn a bit rough on us so just be aware of that try and get your service done and so on and so forth of course because you're in the middle of it you've got to come out of it at some point at some point you'll break out of it yeah yeah, yeah. and as you say you know it's, it's invisible it's a cl it's clear air so it's oh, you can't see it yeah, yeah, you, but obviously you can feel it when you're on the periphery of that yeah. those core winds and being able to predict it is great because it, it, the bumps can come on quite rapidly and um it is unnerving it's a for crew we we see it more as a fatigue thing yeah. over a 12-hour flight three hours in light or moderate turbulence it's quite tiring for the guys down the back apart from the fact that it's spilling their drinks if they can get drinks it actually makes them quite nervous and we're aware of that yeah yeah so things like i'm just thinking right we, we, we touched on uh, ice just before takeoff there and how you how you would clear that 
How, how do you deal with it when you're at 35,000 feet? I mean, what is the temperature of 35,000 feet generally? I mean, it's obviously sub-zero. Yeah, it? I mean, we're looking at outside temperatures around minus 62, minus 63 degrees. So icing actually, unless you're in precipitation, isn't really a major problem. What we have on the aircraft is, let's say we're, say in the climb, for example, or in the mid-level cruise range, 20,000 feet, maybe we're going through some cloud tops. Ice can build up on the engine nacelles, it can build up on the wings. So they're susceptible to getting icing on them. We have detectors which will, uh, essentially the detectors ice up and we get a warning light on the flight deck saying you've got ice problems. But we already have set the anti-icing systems to an automatic mode. The moment that comes up and says there's icing, we get a little thing in the cockpit saying the icing has now come on. And the de-icing bleeds air off the engine compressors, hot air into the wings, uh, so it just melts and drifts off. And into the engine nacelles, exactly the same thing, it just basically melts and goes down the engine and just evaporates. Right, okay. So this is actually jet engine air that comes off the back of the jet. The hot air in the compressor of the, of the jet engine we just bleed a bit off. Now, when you do that, you take away, obviously taking some of the power away from the engine. Now, when you're in the cruise, you're not at full power in the cruise, you're about two-thirds power normally. So what happens is, when it kicks in automatically, the um, the engine loses a little bit of power because it's putting the air out to the uh, the air conditioning system, if you like, or out to the, uh, the cells. The auto throttle just picks the power up, brings the power forward. You wouldn't even notice it's so subtle. Well, it's actually, sometimes you do that. You do feel like they're picking up some acceleration and you're wondering there, the pilot's just getting a bit bored and they want to go yeah. a bit faster. <laughs> but maybe it's an icing it, issue. Maybe it is. I think most people will notice a change in engine note when we do a climb or descent. Ah, that's that's yeah. the big thing. Yeah. You'll get a little bit of resonance when that happens. But with the anti-icing system coming on, it's a very small change in engine power, very, very subtle. So I, I remember, uh, probably about 20 years ago was the last time I heard this, was a thing called a shoe. On the front of yeah. on, on the front of a wing, so this is a. I don't think. Do they still have them? I'm sure there are aircraft that still have them, but uh, the the inflatable boot, as we used to call it, right. uh, was the same thing. It would bleed air, air into it. The boot would inflate on the front of the wing, and the ice would crack off. Right, so Not aerodynamically fantastic, but it, it works. It did the job at the time. Not brilliant when you're coming into land either, is that there's someone stood underneath it. Very quickly, just to go back to the automatic system on the anti-icing, it might be of interest that when we take off, if we're taking off into known icing conditions, you'd think, well, that's great we get airborne, the automatics will take care of it. We don't do that. If we're taking off into icing conditions where the engines or the wing may well encounter ice conditions on takeoff, we actually turn the anti-icing systems on before we get airborne. And the reason we do that is that when we go off with a certain power setting, we don't want it to kick in and reduce power at a critical stage of flight. So we select it on and then what we do is when we do our performance planning, we take that into account that the engine will have that much less power at takeoff. Yeah, I mean, it's not a huge, it's not huge, but it's if, if you're working to the margins of the aircraft's weight, right. it can be quite critical. So we actually do performance figures for anti-icing on and anti-icing off if we think it's appropriate. Once we're airborne, we quite happily stick it back to auto, then it'll do its stuff. So the, the only other question I've got about in flight is, you're at 35,000 feet, how come we can still breathe inside the aircraft? Well, the aircraft is pressurised to a cabin altitude of 6,000 feet. So this is something I remember called PACS. Yep. So the aircraft PACS, basically what we do is we, again, use... Um, bleed air in certainly on the aircraft I fly off the engines and we just basically pressurize the cabin and yes I think if you're flying on at 39,000 feet the cabin altitude is normally around about 6,900 feet uh, yes it's a slightly rarefied atmosphere it's drying without a doubt yeah. um, and the modern airlines are starting to address that a lot more now this, this is this is why your your ears pop uh, as you're going up and down because you're not flying at ground level pressure inside the aircraft you are actually climbing to it's, it's not it's a very gradual increase really you normally people yeah you will notice it a little bit um, actually people most notice it in probably the last 2,000 feet when the aircraft goes down from a thousand foot cabin altitude to zero cabin altitude as we do our final approach but yes we're, we're aware that um, 
yeah if you've got a sticky ear it can be uh, it can be yeah. a problem as you start the descent the other thing i've noticed as well and, and this might be just my imagination is your voice sounds slightly tinnier when you when you're talking because there's there's less air in in or am i just talking rubbish there that might be the case i i, I wouldn't know <laughs> we talked about some bad weather and obviously ice snow mm-hmm. fog clear air turbulence but there must be some real pluses to be flying at 40 45000 feet particularly i'd say towards the northern reaches of of earth where you see say the northern lights yep. or you're near the jet stream obviously that spawns weather as well yep. so things like deep convection and thunderstorms it must be absolutely spectacular to be at the front of an aircraft which i never have been <laughs> and seeing that beautiful oh jeff is just saying yes he has when i worked on the research <laughs> aircraft we used to fly with the uh the cockpit door open so you could just wander up yeah. and, and and look out the front you know? it, it is one of the joys of the job actually uh flying down say to the caribbean in, in the summer now there's always thunderstorm activity down there yeah. and i think mother nature is the most wonderful thing and i i've, I've got photographs and photographs of towering cumulus and and thunderstorms up bits and pieces which I don't want to fly through but from a distance with the sun behind them they're they're magnificent the northern lights phenomena uh, we see it quite a lot in the winter months coming back uh, from places like Boston and those and we're flying northerly routes across the Atlantic we will normally give our cabin crew a quick shout and say hey look you know if you've got a moment come up on the flight take have a look at this it's the most amazing concept and when you're at altitude looking at it I think the most amazing sight I've ever seen was coming in from the North Sea over Edinburgh towards Glasgow and it's like one big conurbation because you've got uh, Cumbernauld in between them, and it just—it's just the most spectacular light display. But unfortunately, all man-made. And, and so you've got—you've got all those sort of lightning displays. You've got the Northern Lights, and then obviously, guaranteed sunsets and sunrises. And you know, you, you almost want to take a camera with you. That's what I'd want to do if I was yep. like that. Do you ever see a couple of sunsets or a couple of sunrises? It can be quite interesting. Sometimes it never gets dark, and sometimes it never gets light. Flying out to uh, Calgary one year on the on seven six seven, I remember uh, literally seeing the the sunrise and fall three times during the flight because the track we took. It's really quite weird. There's no other side effects on the body. I was supposed to know what like night and day is, but it happens three times in six hours. That's yeah. a bit. Uh, I mean, one of the things I've never seen, and I've been quite close to thunderstorms now, but I've never seen a thing called St Elmo's fire. Have you ever come across? Yes, that? regularly. St Elmo's fire is something that if uh, if you have somebody in the flight deck who doesn't know what it is, it can be quite frightening. Startling, isn't it? I've seen yeah. I've seen YouTube videos. Of yeah, it, so. on, on it comes in two ways. Sometimes it's just uh, little bits of um, static arcs coming off the windscreen wipers at the front of the aircraft. Uh, sometimes it's little flows of bands of electricity going up the windshields on the outside. Uh, probably the most spectacular version of it was on my military type of aircraft when I was flying in the military. We had a refueling probe on the front of the aircraft, and it used to manifest itself by hitting. It would start on the refueling probe and it would come back like a spider's web to the right. front of the aircraft and it was purple. And um, we used to get people up on the flight deck and I mean we're talking troops and things, they'd come up, take one look at it and run off. Yeah. Because it looks it looks horrible. But it's but, I mean this used to uh, accumulate on uh, the masts of ships and things right. like that, yes. you know, church steeples and, yeah. and that sort of thing. It's non threatening if you know what it is. Uh, what you do happen is when you've got the that, that happening, you do get static on the radios. Let's just talk very briefly uh, about lightning strikes. Why, why do planes get struck by lightning and, and how dangerous is it? We try to avoid major thunderstorms. We've got a weather radar um, that we can look at the storm. We can see them coming 200, 300 miles away. Yeah. And we make plans to go around them. There's no mileage in going through. You know, we, we avoid and we don't land anywhere that's got one over the airfield. You're going to get close to them. I say close, within five miles sometimes. And particularly over Africa, the Caribbean, there can be quite big monsters, uh, thunderstorms. 
Lightning strikes don't happen that often. Um, when they do, the aircraft essentially just, it's got little discharge wicks all down the wings, down the back of the tail fin, on the body. So the lightning hits the aeroplane and it is just discharged like an earth into the atmosphere. What happens on the flight deck? I mean, we always, when we get a lightning strike, it's, you get a big flash and it's almost like somebody hitting the side of the, hitting the side of the car with a baseball bat. It's that sort of bang. So it makes you jump, it gets you, gets your attention. Yeah. So what happens when, now we talk about landing, when you're flying into an airport yep. and you see these huge cumulonimbus clouds, you see the back, there's a storm there yep. and they're gathering. I mean, obviously right now we're talking, it's the end of May when we're recording this podcast, it's tornado season. Mm -hmm. And we're talking a huge swathe of the US. You can't really escape these nope. huge supercells. What happens then? Okay, so again, in the planning stage, we, we look at that. Uh, I'll give a quick example here of a flight I did to Denver a few years ago. Um, major CB activity forecast uh, throughout Denver. But for our arrival time, Denver was forecast as essentially clear mm -hmm. because the front would have moved through and north. We were aware that this front was wide and was very active. There wasn't going to be a way of picking a way through it. Although the, the, the original route was planned through where the storm was, uh, in the idea that we could pick our way through it, it became evident when we were about two or three hours out, this wasn't really the case. And air traffic control came up and said, um, as the Americans do, we have a reroute for you. Right. So um, we gave, we said, go ahead the reroute, and uh, we copied it down, loaded the flight computer, and the reroute was 450 miles. Wow. That was basically to turn right, go around the whole side of this thing and then come in behind it and then land at Denver in good weather. How long does that take then? Really well, that's about an hour and a half. So we plug that into a computer and the first thing it does is it does a quick jig and it comes up with a big sign saying, you ain't got enough fuel to do this. Yeah. So you have to make a decision then. Are you going to just land somewhere, let the thing pass over, refuel and then go on to Denver? Or are you going to plod on and try and make something out of it? What we elected to do was we took the initial part of the reroute, we turned right and the storm front was off to our left-hand side. We then chose an airfield directly ahead of us. And then we planned a point of no return to that airfield. So we said, we'll get to a point where we have a certain amount of fuel. If we can't turn left right, and proceed yeah. to Denver at that point, we're going to go there and refuel. As it turned out, about 100 miles into the diversion, there was a gap big enough, and we'd climbed up fairly high. And we both said, said to air traffic, we'd like to change our route into this right now to get to the front. And they were quite happy to say, yeah, go and do that. That offloads them a little bit. Right. And we eventually went through the front. No problems, no turbulence, no lightning strikes. It was uh, picked our way through it quite easily. So, so have you got have you got sorts of weather radar on board? Yeah, the weather radar we can tilt it up. Uh, yeah, also on that radar, we can also put a presentation of where other aircraft are as well, which is really useful to us and where they are. So, so this gives you a readout. So, if you happen to have the the Met Office app and you look at the uh, the weather maps and, yeah. and the rainfall, it's very much like that, isn't it? It's it's basically you would get a green, amber and red presentation and uh, green is generally kind of showery, not too threatening, amber's you're going to get bumped around a bit and red, you just don't go there. So we're coming into land now, we've, we've managed to get past the uh, uh, thunderstorms but remarkably there's now fog at the airport. Now visibility in fog when you're looking at it on the ground yep. horizontally is going to be different to when you're approaching an airfield yep. looking diagonally down through it. Is yep. that the case? Very much. Um, so as we get around about an hour or so out from the airfield, we use their, the, the airfield generator airport terminal information service, thing called ATIS. They give us the latest weather conditions, they give us the runway in use, and they give us the state of the approach aids, the stuff on the ground which helps us land as to whether they're serviceable or not. And they'll normally come back and say, we expect you to fly a certain approach on a certain runway. And we go, great, we can plan for that. We then look at all the weather they've given us for the airfield. 
For example, if we were going to have to land with a slight tailwind, that'll change our landing performance. It'll change the way we set the aircraft up for landing, how much reverse thrust we use, and that sort of stuff. In extremists, they come back and say, we're using low visibility procedures, which means that it's going to be an automatic landing, which we have to set up on the aircraft. Right. The aircraft is quite capable of landing in, quite honestly, down to 100 meters visibility. So the aircraft will touch down uh, quite happily, uh, providing it's set up uh, correctly. Um, People sometimes say, well, you don't do an awful lot when you find this aeroplane if it's doing it on the autopilot. Well, I can tell you when an automatic landing's happening, you're more, he you're, you're, you're more heads up. It does also sound like you are very busy from the moment, just before you take off right the way through to landing. You know, and it's not just fog, obviously, when no. you're landing, but there are so many other things that are it, challenges, yes. I would say. It's, it's, it's a case of monitoring, really. Once the, obviously, it's, it's, it's high-tech stuff when you're taking off and getting away from the airport. Once you're in the airline system, the airway system, then it's 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 quite cool. It's quite you know if you're working hard for twelve hours, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, generally, it's quite laid back, and you know you, you each take in turns to do bits and pieces. You're talking to air traffic, you're being handed over to various units. Then you come to the the make your money bit, the, the putt, if you like, on a on a green is is the landing. You know, and that's when you're going to have to work pretty hard. Uh, Can I just ask this? So the other day I was looking on YouTube, and there was this pilot who landed on this. On, landed mm. but it was a cross landing so mm -hmm. it was flying in at 90 degrees literally 90 degrees and then quickly swerve round and touch down perhaps even mm -hmm. on one wheel for a moment I thought that is awesome but is that actually allowed yes any, any pilot would love to have the wind straight down the runway at 10 knots for every landing it's it's a non-movable face it's lovely but that's not the case um and so each aircraft uh, and actually each crew member has a uh, crosswind limitation the aircraft has a uh, an aircraft crosswind limitation that's put in by the, the test pilots and then the companies then say right we would like our uh, senior captains can land in 40 knots crosswind and our co-pilots in two-thirds of that or whatever you know, half that whatever so we have a crosswind limitation so flying into an airport if I'm flying it I'll look at it and I'll say the wind's from 90 degrees off at 20, 20 knots I'll say right I can land this it's within my limits mm -hmm. 20 knots of crosswind how do I do it well obviously you want to land the aircraft in the first part of the runway uh, you want to land it in the center of the runway and you want to land it smoothly because otherwise if nothing else your cabin crew will give you a hard time but yeah. certainly the passengers will so the way we do it is we fly down the approach we and this is where what uh, claire would have seen and we basically cock the aircraft off into wind okay so we're flying a track over ground although the aircraft is pointing 30 degrees off the runway center line we fly the aircraft down keeping it on the center line but pointing 30 degrees in other words taking the drift out yeah, yeah. and most pilots will bring that aircraft down to around about 10 to 20 feet above touchdown. We do get a, a radar altimeter countdown mm -hmm. and they'll very slowly put in the opposite rudder, kick the aircraft straight and drop the aircraft down neatly onto the runway on the center line in the right place. That's what we train to do and we retrain that every six months anyway. Um, there are other methods of getting on the runway. Uh, some people do a side slip method where instead of cocking it straight at the last minute, they actually fly one wing down uh, all the way down the final approach and then they just put one wheel on and then level out. It's, it's a technique thing, and with experience, you learn how best it works for you. Right. So are the automatic systems able to cope? The automatics do exactly. They'll do the uh, what I call kicking off the drift thing. So they, right. they, they will. It, it's an incredible thing the first time you see it happen. The automatic landing system, you know, the fact that, A, it'll kick all the drift off at the last minute uh, and, and land it beautifully, but also when landing in absolute limits of low visibility, you don't actually see the runway until the main wheels touch oh the ground. <laughs> so you, you come down and literally the aircraft counts down 50, 30, 20, 10 feet. You see it going into the flare. You feel the touchdown. At that moment, 
you'll see the first runway light. You're going to have to have nerves of steel, I think, not to be able to see it's when you're It's test of faith landing. the first time you, you do it. Can you tell us, I know we're coming to the end of this podcast, but what I'd really like to know, where are the most sort of challenging airports in the world where you go, oh God, I've got to fly into X now, and this is notorious for one thing or another, the, the, regarding it, the elements and the yes. environment and the weather? The, the challenges, um, they vary from airport to airport. I always say that... Um, New York JFK is, is challenging, but that's mainly because the approach is there and, and it's very, very busy. Yes, yes. Uh, if you throw weather into that as well, it, it can get very challenging in those sort of airports. Some of the airports in Africa, uh, again, weather's the big deal down there. Flying down to Africa through the tropical conversion zone and all that sort of stuff, you're always battling with the elements down there. And that's basically a huge zone of thunderstorms huge zone and showers of yeah. and lots of... But the airports these days, modern airports that modern commercial airlines fly into, have got a lot of kit on the ground, uh, a lot of stuff to help you out getting in there. They've got wind shear, wind shear warnings, they've got all sorts of stuff. Um, and you listen to what other aircraft are doing. Uh, the right. aircraft ahead of you is, is a best source of information, so always. That- the the two two airports that come into mind now is it St Martin in the in the tropics where St Martin's got the the, the runway on the beach yeah so you can watch uh, YouTube uh, it's double A isn't it St Martin interestingly um, one of the airports that I think when they did a survey of pe- airports people didn't want to fly into uh, Madeira was actually oh, one of those yes. airports because it's so high up and it's very rocky well, no no Madeira. actually Madeira is actually at sea level but it, but oh. they they had to build the runway out into the ocean. And uh, wind effect is the problem right, there. If yeah. the wind's out of limits there, your nearest diversion is, is back in Portugal. So right. you fly three hours out, and if, if the wind's out of limits there, you have to fly all the way back to Portugal. So we, we do, do we still use, is it KaiTech in, uh, in... The old Hong Kong airport, which yeah, I have Hong flown Kong. into. Uh, it has a checkerboard that you aim for on the side indeed, of a mountain, yeah. <laughs> and then you turn at the last minute. When that was in operation, there were no uh, flashing lights allowed in Hong Kong. The only ones that flashed were the ones on the approach. And right. you, you, you came out of cloud at 1,000 feet, and essentially you flew a visual approach between skyscrapers yeah. to land into the bay and it was remarkable I remember the first time I did it um, in fact the captain was flying it and I was I was watching him do it and it was lucky that I wasn't flying it because we came out of cloud and it was just this amazing picture of Hong Kong with lights and this checkerboard and, these, and it was just wow yeah. um, very distracting that particular approach we do in the sim- used to do in the simulator first you had to see it elsewhere and there's places that we use as a company now whether we get a new destination we'll generally go and fly it in the simulator to stress test it before we go and do it ourselves my theory has always been that they tend to build uh, runways right next to rotor conditions or in what we used to call runway centric fog the the, yeah the 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 new hong kong airport is is terrific in in all respects but um but yeah this high ground you have to take into account and again when we brief our approaches um, high ground, rotor turbulence, that sort of stuff is always uh, what we call a threat topic. Can you explain what rotor go. turbulence is? Basically, it's, 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 Gibraltar is a classic. Uh, wind coming across the top of the rock quite low to the ground, so as you're turning final, you've got the wind essentially rushing like a waterfall off the top of the mountain, and it affects the aircraft. Um, you, and even in stable conditions? Oh yes, it doesn't take much. I think um, Gibraltar used to publish a list of how bad it would be depending on the wind speed. Right. And so you, you, you get the air traffic information service and go, it's 15 knots. And you go into the how bad is it going to be table and, and groan and, right. uh, you know, and, and, and know that you know, you're going to be working pretty hard. It's not, I want to point out, no, this, it's not dangerous. Uh, it's just uncomfortable and it has to be flown well. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's what we train for. Yeah. I think with 21,000 hours of flying, we've definitely been safe hands, wouldn't we, Jeff? I think so, yeah. I'd be quite confident. Be <laughs> yeah. In fact, I was just trying to work out, we probably, and I know you work for a big airline now, probably have been in that aeroplane when you have been flying at some point if you've clocked up that amount of hours. If, if you've flown enough, some of, our, some of our passengers have got more hours than I've got, which is kind of frightening. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's Steve, good. Uh, so fascinating. And it, do you know what it is also? It's like when you 
listen to your voice. I can imagine myself, you know, sitting there, well, you know, obviously in first class, sipping some champagne, not. But you feel very calm, You've got one of those calming voices when you hear the voice of the pilot through the tunnel, you think, oh yeah, it's good, I'm fine, this is gonna be a good flight. And that's what you want, you want that reassuring tone to, and calmness of a pilot's voice. Well, that's been absolutely brilliant, Steve. Thank you so much for coming in to join us. And thanks to Claire for helping me out there as well. Our editor today was Adrian Holloway and producer was me, Jeff Norwood-Brown. Mostly Weather is a podcast by the UK Met Office.